0: Here at CCA, we are syndicated. Fishing Syndicate offers one of the best lineups of premium fishing rods, designed, prepared, and built by fishermen for anglers of all ages, you. The FS Passion shows in each one of their quality products. They design and build quality products that meet and exceed the desires and demands of all anglers, which provide maximum strength, confidence, and long-term reliability while you're out fishing. From trout to cow bluefin tuna, there is an FS rod that will meet your needs at a very affordable price. Don't forget, custom orders are available too. Visit fishingsyndicate.com to check out the lineup or visit the shop in La Habra, Tuesdays through Saturdays, and don't forget to grab some of the FS swag as well. Get syndicated. Welcome in. Thank you so much for joining us on the CCA California podcast. Good to be with you another week. My name is Chris alongside Darren Crowell. Darren, what's cooking, man? How are you?
1: I'm doing good, man.
0: It's
1: Friday. We're in the studio. It's
0: good to see you for two two consecutive weeks now. Two consecutive weeks. Yeah, it's It's a new record for the summer.
1: Yes, yes it is.
0: (laughs) Uh, Joining us today, we have our brand new assistant director for CCA California, Tony. What's going on, Tony? How are you?
2: hello hello yeah just enjoying my first week and learning
0: yeah yeah
2: Hang, hanging in there
0: <laughs> well, you're still here you're not scared away so that's a good sign so that's good and back by popular demand mr nate what's going on man how are you hey doing
3: great we got a full house in here today this is gonna be fun yeah full house the whole indeed. cca crew in here another congrats to tony Thank congratulations you. on Thank being you. i think new assistant director yeah awesome yep. title so that should be awesome i'm Glad yeah. to be here, as always.
0: Yeah. for Darren, we need a bigger table, man. <laughs> New table. I mean, we just moved into I've the city.
1: I've been picturing a, a whole different setup in here. Mm-hmm. Leaving the slat wall, but doing something different.
0: Oh, thanks for thanks for saying that <laughs> when I worked so hard on this, but it's okay. No, we're leaving the slat <laughs> wall.
1: The table's going.
0: <laughs> the slat wall definitely needs to stay, because it took us darn near six months to put in.
1: No way. Really? It's it, concrete. We, we, we actually had the shop The only, hey, slat wall. The only wall that we decided to put it on is concrete.
3: <laughs> oh no yeah. we didn't know that's that. an issue yeah, yeah. that first one gives you some difficulties yeah, yeah. just okay. a little bit
0: just a little bit well without further ado we've got a very special guest we've got owen snodgrass owen welcome to the podcast man how are you
4: Thanks, man. It's has uh, really good to be here. I've actually been looking forward to this thing, and uh, I love all the work that you guys do.
0: Hell yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, we're we're super stoked to have you. You are a fisheries research biologist for NOAA. Super stoked. I know. Uh, you know. I have some questions. Darren probably has some questions. Tony definitely has some questions. And uh, <laughs> Nate, I know you've uh, you just mentioned that you're you've got a whole list of questions for uh, Owen. So no pressure or anything. Yeah. But you've got, <laughs> prepared.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah no worries i love to talk fish um cool. that's all i think about basically on a daily basis for work and for pleasure so
0: hell yeah well let, let's start there um before we get into your background and all that stuff you are an angler yourself what uh what type of fishing is your favorite all that stuff just let's just start start from there
4: yeah no so um i grew up fishing basically like rock fish and stuff like that with my dad my dad was uh, a curator collector at the scripps aquarium so i was doing a lot of scuba diving um just always in and around the water started surfing and all that stuff and then uh Went to college and actually got my first boat, a little twelve foot aluminum Greger. Nice. And uh, started fishing up there in Santa Cruz for uh, halibut primarily. Um, tried a first salmon a little bit, but it's kind of a small boat, big ocean up there. Um, then, Just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I got a. I think I got out six miles one day. Um, that thing and then turned around. <laughs> that was a <laughs> record. <40. laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I moved back to San Diego and started fishing La Jolla Kelp a lot out of my little aluminum beach launching it. Um, Basically targeting yellowtail, and mm. you know, looking for those home guard fish. So that's that's where I started, and I spent a lot of time doing that off La Jolla. Got some white sea bass, um, a few halibut there, and then um, finally upgraded to a bigger boat. And uh, I've been targeting a lot more pelagics these days. Uh, tuna. Um, I want to try and start deep dropping for swordfish, hopefully soon. Mm. Um, so I, I kind of like, I just love to do it all. Not not so much freshwater. I'm a salt guy.
0: Okay, okay. So the home guard yellows do exist.
4: They do. There's actually some really fun work that i did on yellows i tagged a bunch of home guards and uh oh. we can talk about that in a little bit if you want there's some really cool results on that um, i've got a paper out that we could put links to up to papers that i've done stuff like that
0: well since you teased it let's start there tell us about these home guard yellows because personally i think i've seen maybe one or two over the years but tell us about that about that cool stuff and how big
4: are they <laughs> that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> They get pretty big uh, locally. You know, I think um, I saw I was, the boat next to me when I was fishing this summer. I landed like a 51. Wow. I heard of a couple. Home guard? Home guard, yeah. Wow. Um, I was right next to a couple of boats, and we all, most of the boats, except for me, landed fish over 40 pounds that day. Oh, except nice. for you, yeah. Except for oh. I got a thirty-eight pounder like a week before. So that why are we spending that. all this?
2: Not gasp- a big deal at all. Yeah.
1: No. A- <laughs> why are we spending all this gas when you go to Catalina for yellows? Yeah, I know. No, that's why.
4: That's why I love the beach launch, man. When you beach launch right there in La Jolla, you're literally two miles from like where a lot of these big yellows are. Um, so it's just super fun, especially in a catch them in a small boat. But
1: can you draw me a map, please? <laughs> yeah. I, like that's gonna can, help you. Yeah. <laughs>
4: Just, just stick to the beach is, uh, is my only hint that I'll give you. But huh. yeah, a, lot awesome. these, a lot of these big fish really do like shallow water. Um, huh. So, yeah, no, I did a lot of work. On what I was really interested in how far these big home guards move, uh, what they do, you know, how to kind of find more of them or stay on top of them and stuff like that. And so I ended up tagging, I think, 20 fish over 30 pounds with just little conventional tags. It's just like a basically a piece of wire you put into the fish with a number on it, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it gets recaught, they can call me and tell me where they recaught it. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, mm. some of these fish were recaptured over a year later a less than a mile from where I tagged them. And these were wow. fish, like, around True 40 pounds. home guard. Yeah. No kidding. Wow. So we don't know what they did in huh. between that time, but they more or less kind of like... Like little areas on the beach, inshore. So hmm. Interesting. It's pretty pretty cool, yeah. So this paper, actually, I also tagged a bunch of smaller kelp petty rats um, to see what kind of movements they have because there's all kinds of theories about, oh, these fish come in from Mexico, um, where a lot of the spawning occurs offshore. And then they recruit to the inshore waters, and they kind of stick around there and find their home, essentially, right? These big mossbacks. And, uh, yeah, so the, the smaller fish actually moved... Pretty good distance. A lot of them are recaptured like a week later, thirty miles further offshore somewhere. Oh else. wow! Yeah, but the that's bigger a quick fish, turnaround. Yeah, no, there's a lot of effort on kelp patties sometimes. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: so that's interesting, and, and that kind of goes something slightly different. That's white sea bass, though. It's another coastal fish. People kind of know them as as home guard type species. But what I know that was interesting is at least in the past couple of years, that local fish, the the whites, I'm sorry, the La Jolla stuff. Has sort of dwindled out. I know at least Brandon Hayward or the bite guys, they've moved almost their whole operation up to Oxnard Adventure, and they're fishing Santa Cruz Island. Is there a reason as to why? Are those different groups of fish or, or that, is the sea bass sort of like the Yellowtail where they basically stay where they're in their little zone?
4: Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I There was a really good white sea bass fishing right in the same area I was talking about. Catch my yellows on um, like 2009 through 2011. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I got a lot of yellows on my or sea bass on my kayak and my little aluminum skiff, too. Um, and that's there was really good home guard yellowtail fishing right there at the same time. And there wasn't anything really going on at the Channel Islands for sea bass or yellowtail in those years. Um, and one of the things that was going on is there was a lot of squid in La Jolla those years. Um, mm. I mean, everybody knows that white sea bass really like to eat squid. And, you know, it seems like La Jolla has been kind of slow for, like, that squid body mass, essentially, for a a while. Yeah, there hasn't been much volume there um, in the past, like, five or six years. And I think those white sea bass, I mean, like all fish, it's like you find the bait, you find the fish. Oh, yeah. So where the bait is, what, you know, their preferred uh, forage base is, that's where the fish are going to be. So those white sea bass are probably – They're probably the same schools. They just moved up there, and that's where they're finding their preferred habitat and food source, essentially.
3: That makes sense. You know, talking about cycles and stuff, I don't know. That's something I've always been interested in. You know, people talk about um, offshore cycles, you know, way back when. I can't even remember it, but uh, albacore was the thing, right? And that has slowly transitioned into bluefin. Um, Are those cycles based on water condition, or is it more bait and volume of bait in the water?
4: Uh, it's really complicated. Um, it's, it's, all, it's all of it, you know, everything essentially, mm. like food source, um, water conditions, temperature, currents, and all that stuff. So it all comes into play. It's really complicated and hard to actually really pinpoint. Um, that's the mm. million-dollar question is like, yeah, when are the Albuquerque going to come back here? What conditions do you need for that?
1: Got you. The what conditions do you need for that do you know
4: um yeah no it's the, something with the recruitment essentially so albacore is an interesting one because like obviously the fishing down here hasn't been good since like 2007 i think the, or 2008 was the last good year there were still some fish caught up until 2011 but since then there's been like maybe one or two caught down here a year but at the same time it's been really good off washington and oregon still for the wreck and the commercial guys are at least not some years are better than others up there so
1: doesn't albacore like colder water then, since they're up that way?
4: They, they generally do prefer a little bit colder water, and, um, yeah, they do uh, have, <clears throat> Excuse me, have different, like, kind of migration patterns, too, in terms of, like... So albacore all spawn on the Central Pacific. All the fish that we have that we see on our coastline here are juveniles, like, two- to four-year-old fish, essentially. Sometimes right. there's those bigger fish. But... So they all spawn in the Central Pacific, and then they recruit mm-hmm. to the California coastline. Mm-hmm. So similar to like the idea of like a yellowtail, when it gets old enough, it stays into a smaller, or sticks into a smaller range, essentially. The albacore, when they come into the coast, they either recruit like to Southern California or up north off Washington, Oregon, um, NorCal and stuff like that. And then when they do that, they kind of like stay in those areas, essentially. So whatever we've been having down here is we haven't had any of those baby, like young one-year-old fish come into the Southern California bite. So the currents have been pushing that body up north and not bringing any fish in whatever, for right. whatever reason, they just haven't been coming in the coast down here.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
2: Does uh. salinity play a factor? I've heard, um, you know, from working on the boats, we always hear about people saying, oh, I, you weren't around when albacore were here and it was awesome. <laughs> and so one of one of the things that I was told, so maybe you can help debunk this, is does salinity come into play where they're usually higher, higher um sightings and were people catching them more in a in a lower salinity year compared to others
4: i don't actually really know that answer to that question um salinity i don't think necessarily probably comes into play too much but i'm not like an oceanographer in terms of that like a more like the biology side of things um yeah i wouldn't really know if that has any impact to be honest
2: (laughs) fair well there you know like you mentioned before there's so many different reasons why they could fluctuate in and out of the area that you can't you can't pinpoint just one reason
4: yeah yeah um it's it's pretty complicated like i was saying that is the million dollar question in terms of Alvar. everybody wants albacore the, the sport fishing fleet you know that used to be their bread and butter fish until these bluefin showed up and So yeah. thankfully we've had really good bluefin fishing over the past like 10 15 years so
0: yeah so the burning question when are they coming back
4: uh, every year is that's, like, I don't know. Everyone it seems like it. Like when the anchovy yeah. population came back, I'm like, Oh, here we go. You know? Cause I, I started uh, my work on, uh, albacore diets essentially. So in 2007, I got hired by NOAA to go out on the sport boats and collect albacore to continue a diet time series. So there was a mm-hmm. student at Scripps working on what albacore eat for like two or three years and they got some funding to continue that. So I started uh, basically going out on uh, some of the sport boats like new loan a lot of the times and uh, just collecting carcasses and stomachs mm-hmm. taking it back to the lab and looking what they're eating and uh, a lot almost all those fish for a while were full of anchovy like they huh, really that's like interesting really small anchovy yeah
3: so actually I have a question about that so you know when you were catching the albacore guys were also catching big eye and sometimes later in the season some yellowfin and the occasional bluefin Were there different feeding patterns between the different species of fish, even in the same zone, you know, like do bluefin eat different fish than albacore do?
4: Um, I don't, I never looked at any of the stomachs for the other species, but Mm -hmm. I would assume that they were probably eating different things. I mean, the timing, I know the big eye oftentimes was a little later would show up in the year. Okay. Um, I think, so there's, I mean, the the forage does move around a little bit too, you know, like anchovy will move in and move out um, on the beach, offshore, up and down the beach and stuff like that, but. Yeah, I don't know. There, I mean, there's definitely when you target a, or you're on a school and you're catching mixed tunas like yellowfin and albacore. They generally are eating the same thing. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these tunas do like what we call young of the year. It's prey that was like basically spawned earlier that spring. That little it's got, micro stuff, yeah, right? yeah, the yeah. My, micro bait or whatever. You know, that's all basically fish that was spawned earlier in the year and it's super small. It's like almost. It's not. They're all juvenile, like bait fish, essentially. So all all that. Anchovy that I was finding were under 70 centimeters, essentially, like little ones. Wow. 35 to 70 centimeters. Yeah.
0: Crap, I have to pull out a measuring device. I don't know what that is.
4: So, like, when you're fishing (laughs) the bigger baits, then, is it just like three three inches? Three inches. Okay. Okay.
0: Thank you. So, like, it's hard to fish three-inch baits,
3: though. So, when you're fishing those bigger baits, but the fish are keyed into that small bait, is it just just basically force feeding them Like you just put that bait in front of their face just in reactionary bites or do they actually prefer, do they have that sort of differentiation, you know, where they will prefer a small bait or a big bait, you know, can they?
4: Yeah, no, that's a good question in terms of an angler. Um, I think you just, you just got to get the bait in front of its face essentially, yeah, right? you know, and have that bait look like it's like alive and like something that they want to attack or whatever, you know, I mean, it gets to like, and when they're on that micro stuff, it's just so easy for them to, swim through and just open their mouth and like they don't really have to actively target mm. a lot of these small things um you know so i think with, in terms of a bigger bait presenting a bigger bait in a school of micro stuff like that you just kind of got to get in front of them so they see it and then, gotcha. then they might eat it you know because okay. they're, they're just so focused on all this little stuff that's right in front of their face that's easy to eat you know mm. so if it's not in front of their face they're not going to turn away from an easier meal to go eat a, wow. a hook sardine or a big anchovy or something like that totally mm-hmm. makes yeah. sense
0: so there is a chance whenever they're on the micro stuff that uh, we, we still can get hooked up during those foamers.
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, even like a bigger jig or something like that might work better because it, then it's going to stand out more obvious. If you ask me, you know, like I love throwing hmm. big irons like in foamers like, on the micro stuff. I mean, you just got to get that one fish that sees it and turns on it essentially.
0: Hmm. Interesting. That's open <laughs> so, my eyes. I mean,
4: I was kind of curious about foamer fishing too. It seems like that's
3: a relatively new development. But I, I don't really know the history of these fish. Is that a, a, a sort of a new feeding pattern, or have they always been foaming?
4: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really interesting one, which so I can talk about um, in terms of, like, the bluefin diets that I've been doing. So similar to albacore, I've looked through, I don't know, thousands of bluefin stomachs over the years. So I started collecting bluefin in 2008, um, and I've been collecting them every year since. And 2008, 2009, there were all you know. There was no or fishing. We're not yeah. seeing any fish up top. All the sport boats mm-hmm. are driving around meter marks, like stopping on meter marks, or fishing the 60 mile bank, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And all the fish are down deep. Um, so looking through all the stomach content, I never found. That's when the anchovy kind of disappeared. Was 2008. So 2007 was there was a lot of anchovy around. Everything I looked at had an anchovy in the stomach. 2008, mm-hmm. it was all this stuff called deep scattering layer prey, um, like. Lantern fish um, small squids, small crustaceans like really? really small like deep water stuff essentially hmm. and the fish are down deep um, On meter marks is where you're fishing them. You're stopping. You're throwing chum. You're not getting them to come up a lot and uh, Yeah, so 2008 through 2013 it was it was very much just meter marks school fishing um, Everything in their stomachs reflected them forging down deep and nobody
3: was fishing a knife jig.
4: Yeah. No, they were
2: fishing the knife jig they just weren't dropping down deep enough very That's
3: true problem. right everyone <laughs> just had one lure the glow flat fall and that was it right? <laughs> <laughs> that was the only lure if you weren't using anything else you didn't know what you were doing uh, yeah yeah I, I
0: still it's about interesting in my taco box. yeah right me too. <laughs> we all do yeah, yeah. 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 you'd mentioned all the all the bait down down deep and all that stuff what about all that red crab that happened you know years ago
4: yeah, so that's like uh, the, t- the time series that I have, I was just going to continue talking oh, about yeah. and how it changed, and like and now we have anchovy and, like, and foamers, right? So, so 2014, 2015, um, we had all that uh, influx of pelagic red crab, which was mm-hmm. like generally related to, like we see that during El Nino years, historically. Um, lots of things are falling apart in terms of El Nino versus La Nina. Yeah, These days, um, it's getting harder to predict, um, but yeah, so all that red crab showed up, and during an El Nino year, the red crab starts... Uh, f- you know forming rafts on the surface essentially so you'll see it and it's all throughout the water column So that's what all life was finding in the tuna stomachs so that year was like mm. some uh, Some other fish, but primarily you get these stomachs and they're just chock full like digest the red crab. They're they're a nightmare mm. to process those stomachs <laughs> <laughs> You're just, just Counting claws essentially. Wow. But but yeah. Um, yeah, so that kind of is when they started to change their behavior a little bit so the fish we're no longer as deep in the water column. They're coming up and they're eating red crab closer to the surface. And then fast forward another couple years, the anchovy population has been rebounding and the anchovy is like an epipelagic. So the the, the deep water bait is like a mesopelagic, which means like, um, it's basically it's the lower water column um, zone. Epipelagic is surface waters. Anchovy really like surface waters. Um, so what happens is all of a sudden the anchovies just blooming you know tons of anchovy now and it's a surface oriented fish and now what are we seeing bluefin tuna foraging at the surface foaming balling up these huge schools of anchovies so the behavior i like to link it to accessibility to fishermen too right so whatever bait is out there in the water or whatever prey is available is going to dictate the behavior of like pelagics or any fish essentially like tuna Um, so yeah it's very different fishing and it's probably related to the, the bait species that are available for them to forage mm. on yeah
3: hmm. now you know talking about bait and stuff i know the big ones really targeted on those larger bait species whether that be flying fish um this year i was fishing commercially and my captain kept talking about pacific salaries mm-hmm. and now i didn't realize that it even they even came as far north oh, but yeah. uh, i guess these bluefin were ha- inhaling these soury fish is is there anything else that they're eating or is it basically just i mean. Or at, at what point do they start really targeting the larger bait fish like, like salaries or, or, fly, or flying fish? Once they get to, like, that 100-pound mark or, or I, what?
4: I've seen salaries in small fish, big fish, you know, really? medium-sized fish. Yeah, mm. salaries, actually, they, you find them all the way up to Washington. Um, oh, no yeah. kidding. So they, oh, they're sure. in every part of, the, like, the oceans except for, like, the Arctic and stuff like that. But, yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, sure. um, I thought they were a southern thing. It's it's just what they're, they'll they eat, what they come across, essentially, you know. If they're hungry and they see it, they'll they'll eat it. For sure. So... Yeah, no, you can see um, big baits and small fish too. So, hmm. yeah, but the flying fish thing is—it's definitely interesting. I think it's more of a you know, similar to like more of a reaction bait. I haven't just looking through stomachs on my own. Like, I haven't really ever seen like a, that many flying fish in their stomachs. Really? But, but yeah, fishing them with flying fish is very effective for whatever reason. Um, it's probably just you, fish are hungry. They see a nice big bait <laughs> present it to them well, and they're gonna eat it. Yeah.
0: So you're saying that you're not seeing the, the flying fish necessarily in the stomachs. It just happens to be where, you know, we're, we're catching them or we're being effective um, using that method for the bluefin.
4: Yeah. So um, I'm sure that bluefin are eating them naturally on their own, you know, right. but for me, the stomachs that I get are off, you know, sport. really, I collect them from the sport fisheries. So what, uh, what are the, if sense. you're, you know, if they're on a school of a thousand fish and they catch a hundred and I look through 10 of those stomachs, what are the odds that I'm going to find a flying fish? I mean there every other fish in that school could have had a flying fish in it, but if I didn't get that stomach, I'm not gonna see it. Mm-hmm. Right? right. So there there's very good chance that a lot of those fish in that school actually had flying fish in their bellies, but I didn't get that fish, you know. Mm. So
0: how often do you get to get the opportunity to go on sport boats and collect stomachs and all that stuff?
4: Uh, I used to go all the time, um, you know, like... <laughs> Sorry, of, touchy subject. Yeah, a little bit, a little <laughs> bit, yeah. I, I miss it sometimes. Other times I'm like, yeah, it's kind of nice to sleep in my own bed and have a nine to five, like, yeah. you know. But yeah. Yeah, when I started, like, that was what... I just was going out there all the time to collect my stomachs. And then it became pretty obvious that it wasn't super time efficient um because i had less time in the lab processing stuff essentially Mm -hmm. so i found ways to just get the guys to bring me the stomachs at the dock and then i started working with the processors like five star Mm fisherman's processing and i just go down there and dumpster dive essentially so i show up (laughs) (laughs) yeah i show up and they're like oh here we go again How glorious
0: How, I mean, you just kind of mentioned it, but, you know, how big of a role does the anglers do the, the sport boats and even the processors play in research and, you know, it, all that collaboration, it must be a good thing.
4: Yeah, no, it's, it's critical. Working with fishermen is like, you know, the only way to really address a lot of questions that we have about these fish that we love to catch and that are right here off of our coast. So mm-hmm. for, m- for my work, it's been critical. I get a lot of different biological samples from every fish. I'll take DNA, otoliths. Um, the stomach content, um, some tissues for different analyses, which is really cool. Actually, um, there's a lot of publications on, um, you don't know, you are what you eat, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's it can be inherently difficult working with uh, some fishermen. <laughs> like, I'll, I've been on sport boats. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> what? No, they, everybody, they all want to help, you know, and stuff like that. But I get it. They're, you know, they're busy, they're tired, they, they forgot to save that head, they forgot to keep that stomach. I've been out on the boat, like... We caught one albacore one day, and they're filleting it. I'm standing there behind them with the bag waiting for the carcass. You you know, these guys are working so long. such hard Mm -hmm. hours. Fillets the fish over the side. Fillets Uh. the fish over the side. I'm sitting. watching. one fish that I went (laughs) out. Went out on a a day-and-a-half trip, and the one fish that I was waiting to get sampled was just like, they didn't think about it, you know. Uh, Oh, yeah. yeah, That makes sense. Uh. So that's one of the reasons why I started – spending more time in the lab and trying to get fish in different ways. Like Mm -hmm. you you go out on a trip and if you don't catch fish, you just wasted a day and a half. Yeah. Essentially where I could have been on a different boat and gotten 20 samples or something Mm -hmm. like that. yeah, fishing that's one of the reasons why it's difficult. Not, not that working with fishermen is difficult. (coughs) Fishermen are great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen a change in, in like mentality of of the anglers to where it's like they want to be helping out. Whereas, you know, years ago they're the old salty guys, I'll call them. Um, they just don't want to or they just – because you're from that side, you're the scientist, they just are anti-whatever? Uh, you still see a little bit of both. Um, yeah. But uh,
4: for the most part, I think there's definitely more people interested in, in the, the results, helping out, and stuff like that. Everybody knows that you got to manage this, effective, this resource effectively, otherwise it might go away or we'll have less opportunities to fish. Mm-hmm. And I know you guys are all about increasing opportunities to fish. You of know? course. So the more we know about them, the better they're managed, the more – we'll be able to keep doing what we love to do and getting out there in water and bringing home delicious, you know, really healthy food for our families and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, there's definitely more participation. More people are interested in, it. I love going to like outreach events, day at the docks, um, art hall shows, stuff like that. And just talking about this stuff and you get a lot, most people come up and they really want to pick your brain and they're really interested in it. They, if they can help, they want to help, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I have, yeah, it's again, it can be just like a lot of time to put in to try and get one fish sometimes when you're, that's why I like to go down to the processors and just have at it.
0: <laughs> gotcha. gotcha. But yeah, no,
4: there are opportunities, to, um, you know, to try and help volunteer. If you catch something cool on the water, call me. I love to hear about stuff like, you know, especially if it's weird and rare or something like that.
0: Oh, you know, I, okay. I
4: will spend a lot of time, like, whenever I monitor all this stuff, like, I'm like, oh, you know, big bluefin, like a 400-pounder is caught I'm Like, I'll, I'll drop everything and try and get that sample and, like, talk to people mm. and network and stuff like that. So, mm.
0: So yeah, have you? The 400 pound bluefin.
4: I didn't get the 400 pounder, <laughs> <laughs> but it's
0: they are, but they are there.
4: Yeah, I did get, um, I did get like whatever, what's his name on pinnacle sport fishing, the big one that they got this year, the first big over three, uh, Dwayne. Dwayne. I, yeah, 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 I got that one. Oh, cool. that's good. That's <laughs> right good. On.
0: Any results? Anything you want to share?
4: Uh, I don't think still process that sample yet. Yeah, oh a wow, the, a lot of the work, um. We collect the samples and archive them, and it takes a long time to actually get results back, especially depending on the question. You know, there's there's a lot of different steps. Collecting it's just the, the, the beginning, essentially. The easy part? Yeah. I mean, the, you have to have funding to do specific analyses, um, look at the, you know chemical signatures of the otoliths and all kinds of stuff. It's, there's a lot of people that work on the fish from collection to actual scientific publication. Hmm. So. Hmm. It's a lot more that goes into it than you would think. People are always like, "Oh yeah, you got the results back from that? You got the results back for that?" I'm like, "Let me email this person. This person." (laughs) Like, like, no, not yet. It's they're still waiting to send it out. (laughs) So,
3: like, that's interesting that you're waiting for that really big one because I know it seems like the the fish around here kind of top out at that three to maybe 350 pound class. But as we all know, bluefin can get much, much bigger than that. Yeah, I've. I remember this story, I think it was back in the nineties or something. There was these commercial fishermen way out west. I think like almost by like the San Juan seamount, way out there. And they caught some over five hundred pounds. Yep. And this is all just a rumor, and I've never seen pictures or anything, but why don't those giant ones move through anymore? You know, it seems like there's plenty of bait.
4: Yeah, no, that's a good question. And that's not a rumor that actually did happen, you know. A lot of really? guys a lot of guys bought new boats from that like a couple of years of fishing big bluefin wow. per, per same boats um they uh, they wrapped yeah. them up essentially yeah. yeah so there was some really school really large schools of like 500 to 600 pound bluefin here for Jeez. a couple of years back then and um there are some photos out there you can do i can dig up the newspaper articles that i have in my office um but yeah we haven't seen that um maybe those fish do come through occasionally and we don't just catch them you know mm. we don't see them there aren't there's a lot of people on the water now so you'd think you'd see them right. but yeah. um, So generally speaking, um, all the bluefin similar to the albacore, are that we have here on our coast are juvenile fish. They're all fish that are here to forage, get big and fat, and then go reproduce back on their spawning grounds. Like the only known spawning grounds for Pacific bluefin tuna are in the uh, Western Pacific Ocean, essentially. So all the fish that we see here were spawned over by Japan or in in the waters by Taiwan Taiwan? and China. That makes sense. And then a certain percentage of those fish swim to the California coastline, forage here for three to now 10 years or so. Like it used to be like you would think only see three to five-year-olds, but some of these larger fish are eight, nine, 10 years old. Mm. Um, And then they they get some signal, some cue, like they go back to the spawning grounds because that's where they know the conditions for their eggs and larvae to actually be viable and, you know, not just pass away.
1: So that was going to be my question. When it comes to migration, do they actually make the trek back Back and
4: forth. Um, That's one of the questions that we've been trying to get to with some of the work that we've been doing. We haven't found any evidence to show that they do come back and forth. You can kind of look at their tissues and the chemistry of their, their otolith, which is the bone in the brain, um, which is how you age fish. And then you can kind of like try and match up a lot of different like m- finite uh, migration patterns and stuff like that. But it's really difficult, and the signatures are all kind of all over the place, so it's really hard to pinpoint. Um, Sounds like we need to do a tagging trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go. (laughs) Cow tagging. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. And there are are some people that have been tagging cows. um, um, Yeah, and there's some, I don't think that paper has been published yet or anything like that, but there hopefully will be some results um, that did show, like, I think some of the big fish tagged here um, ended up swimming back and the tags popped off back in the Western Pacific Ocean or something like that. Yeah. So
1: now, is there a difference, but when it comes to the, the same species, is there a difference between the Pacific and Atlantic bluefin?
4: Um, yeah, I think that's a good question.
1: Uh, the reason why I ask is because we're talking about big fish and you see a lot of big bluefin come out of the Atlantic.
4: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, they do have similar kind of migration patterns from spawning grounds to foraging grounds and back and forth, at least definitely in the Western or the Atlantic. Um, the fish kind of do that. It seems like it's pretty well documented. Um, we do get large bluefin in the Pacific, but we they don't, we don't see them here for whatever reason. So there, I think that's related to the fact that large fish where, you know, their their only job is to reproduce, essentially. So if the conditions for their larvae and eggs to um, grow up aren't right, they're not going to go somewhere else, essentially. Right. But, yeah, I mean, genetically, there's probably not much of a difference. They're basically the same fish, you know. But for whatever reason, conditions and all that stuff come into factor. So the oceans are definitely have different aspects to them. That's probably part of it,
0: yeah. Okay. Off the, I've heard... Uh, often that you know the the bluefin that are here that are they're basically here to stay they're not going back they typically do almost like a figure eight where you know right from the southern tip of baja all the way up to i think washington we've seen um evidence pretty true whatnot is that what you've seen as well
4: yeah um so they did a lot of tagging um a while ago of bluefin with archival tags which is the tag you stick in the belly essentially and you can get you know movement, depth, behavior, and um, foraging events and stuff like that, lots of cool information. And it's pretty well documented that the bluefin will spend their winters off Southern California, Baja, something like that. And then, then oftentimes swim swim to Monterey used to be a very historical uh, location where you'd see a lot of bluefin and then up to even Northern California, and yeah, even further north, um, depending on the year and stuff like that. And then they kinda, so when they, they'll just do north-south migrations essentially. So similar to the albacore, when they come into the coast, they stick around and then do these different migrations, and then they'll swim back to their spawning grounds once they've gotten to the point where they're like, yeah, I'm ready to go and make babies, essentially. But, yeah, so that's pretty, pretty true, and it's kind of fell apart for a while there. You know, they weren't seeing any bluefin off of central California or northern California, um, and now it seems like with the biomass that we have here, they're starting to go back to their historical migration routes, and there's, I mean, they're catching 100-pounders up six miles off of Fort Bragg right now. That's right. Sort of, yeah, sort of follow into that. Yeah, that's been historic tuna fishing up north, not only for bluefin, but for
3: yellowfin as well. Yeah. I remember last year they got some great, like, crazy catches. I mean, you're talking like Puerto Vallarta type fish, these yeah. big, sickle, like ahi yellowfin tuna. Yeah, yeah. Uh, are they just following the same currents and following the bait streams or what?
4: Uh, I'm working on a project right now on that, so that was really? actually, I was actually out at sea um, when I saw some of that stuff come through Instagram. I was just like, "Whoa, there's like a 265 pound yellowfish <laughs> yeah. off of Fort Bragg." I was like, yeah. "What is going on here?" Like, we didn't see any of those fish in Southern California last right? year. Yeah, you know, and they're catching big eye. Like, there's a big eye caught to 260 pounds at this year. Wow, there, you know, and it's been pretty good fishing for those things um, off Fort Bragg, um, Eureka, that whole area. So I'm really interested in why that's happening and why we're seeing them down here. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's a paper that I'm getting asked about results for a lot right now from the guys up there. Cause I saw that happening on Instagram and I instantly just reached out to a bunch of people. I'm like, I need tissue samples from these fish cause you can take the tissue and you can kind of match it to the water where it came from. Similar to like I was saying earlier that you are what you eat. So the nutrients and um, chemical composition of them, the muscle or the otolith or whatever part you wanna take, you can kinda of link back to where it might've migrated from. So once a, you know, a bluefin, if a bluefin is in Japan, you take a piece of the tissue and you analyze it, it's gonna, you're gonna be able to match it up to the water masses off there. Mm-hmm. But once it swims in the California Current and it stays here for a period of like 14 to 18 months, its muscle turns over and changes the chemical composition and you can be like, oh, now it's obviously a resident in Southern California or the California coastline.
3: So you, and either outcome is, is helpful for you, right? Because either you can see that this fish is migratory and moved right in, or it's been here for a period of a longer period of time, more than a year. Yeah, which no. is significant, I feel, because we don't have big yellowfin.
4: No, no, we don't. Oh, uh, hmm. yeah. Well, no, I, I did get the one. There was like a 260 pounder caught a couple of years ago, uh, by a guy at Oceanside here. Bo actually. Oh yeah. I know no, him uh, well. Yeah, I know. I got. He runs the bait bars. That guy is a salty dude. Yeah. He no. got a,
3: a huge <laughs> mako shark this year yeah like a 900 pounder it was it was a sea monster it it was this past winter i think it was this past winter it was some of the best like mako shark fishing i have ever seen there was at least half a dozen over 500 pounds caught it was kind of are those all breeders like are are they all coming in to like spawn and we're messing them up that's a yeah.
4: That's a good question. Um, <laughs> don't want to We did we fine, did a lot but... of we did a lot of mako shark tagging back in yeah. the day. Um, the Southern California bite is like a juvenile nursery ground for mako sharks. Is it? <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Um, and blue sharks. Um, so a lot of sharks have pretty cool migration patterns too, where they come in and out of the bite. Um, some of these big ones, if you know, if they're females, they might be coming here to to pup. We don't really know much about like the reproductive biology or where they're spawning or where they're giving birth and stuff like that, but. A fish that that large is definitely mature that's oh, for, sure. Oh, <laughs> for sure oh yeah <laughs> that's
1: insane. so let's uh let's touch on what we've been calling here in the studio, the endless Dorado summer that we had about a year or two ago. What was the cause of that one, yeah. and how come we didn't see it again as big as it was? They were here last this this summer, but not as plentiful as they were the not year even before, yeah. no.
3: Tony can touch on that too. I'm sure you killed hundreds of dorado. (laughs) (laughs) That was crazy.
2: I've never seen so many fish in my life Mm -hmm. at at one time, both on the boat and in the water. The Mm -hmm. water was, and I've said this before. I've illustrated this before. You know, looking out around the boat, green, just (sighs) green water. It's not deep blue. You know, warm water. It was just green, and it would go out for so far beyond the back of the boat, and it it was the most fun fishing you can have, mm-hmm. you know, especially last year. But, yeah, the the amount of Dorado that we saw last year and, and they, you know, when we would fillet them, um, the amount of food and, and all sorts of fish and, you know, Argonaut octopus that we would see in their stomach, they just seem like they're voracious eaters that are not really picky. If they have no, something in front of their tomatoes. face, they're they're going to go at it. <laughs> they're yeah. not shy.
4: Yeah, no dorado. I haven't done many stomach content um, or looked through many stomachs of them myself because it's not a species that we're focusing on right now. But um, they'll, they eat pretty much everything. Yeah, for sure. And they can eat a lot. You know, they, they're the fastest growing fish in, in the sea. So they need oh, to, wow. they need to eat a lot. Yeah, they can grow. You know, from two to six pounds within a couple of months or something like that. Oh. So, it's pretty funny. If you it, just look at the, the anatomy of a
3: Dorado, you know, it's like their mouth is, like their eyes are directly be, like behind their mouth. So I can just imagine their whole life is just them as a flying mouth, like little Pac-Man just right? eating yeah. constantly. And they're they're crazy. Like I was seeing these football, like literally football field types, just open water of just jumping Dorado. And was that because of the, the warmer water we had last year? You know, because I remember it was, even in June, we had 70-degree water. And yep. as opposed to this year, not even close.
4: Yeah, no, so last year, um there's a lot to unpack there, but it was definitely, like, I looked at it, and I, I noticed, like, a lot of, you know, just every, everything that you guys just said, um, and I looked at the numbers of the recreation, like, the total number of Dorado caught recreationally last year, and I compared it to, the, I think, like, going back to the 80s or something like that, basically when a lot of these records started being, like, kept. And last year, we saw more Dorado than any other year in history? Wow! Caught by the sport f- fleet. Wow! I can believe it. I think it was something like I don't know, over sixty thousand fish. or I, something I like can that. believe it. Yeah, and that's not counting all the private
3: boaters. Too. <coughs> yeah, so uh, it's, it, was it was June to November, yep. straight trout fishing. Yep,
4: no, it was really good.
2: Like, I mean, earlier than June, they they than were June. here. Yeah, you know, I don't, there weren't you know big con- conglomerate groups of them that people were getting, but they yeah, were they that's were crazy. here pretty early last year. But yeah, mid mid June. Full Speed hmm. last year was just a full speed season from one yeah. species to the next, Maybe consistent, just right. very consistent. Season for last year,
1: it's funny because when that happened, we were in La Paz fishing, catching all kinds of Dorado. Well,
3: that's the center, right? It's I even, mean, La Paz exactly. is where you go to catch Dorado,
1: exactly. So we get home and we're like, Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, wait, what? we just <laughs> went down here. To catch- oh man, <laughs> it was crazy, but they stayed around for a long time. Oh, yeah.
3: So that's that's do you do any work with marlin like striped marlin or blue marlin that come up here because I know that's fairly closely tied with Dorado because that's that's a prey fish for them.
4: Yeah, we don't do much work on uh, on any billfish except for swordfish, um, okay? Yeah, not none of the striped marlin. We used to have a billfish tagging program at the lab where we would give anglers like tags to basically tag and release some, and you get like point A to point B like movements. You don't get much data, it's similar to the yellowtail attacks mm. I, I use, they're just a number and a uh, a number for the fish that it is, and then a phone number to call when you catch it. Essentially, cool. So we used to do that, but we don't do that much outreach anymore. There's a lot of the organizations which are doing it better than we could, based on our staffing and available funding and stuff like that. But um, now they're very, very much so. Also, like you know, similar timing of arrival for as Dorado and stuff like that. All these fish that come from the south, it's they're coming up here for the warm water and the food again, because the California Current is such a productive environment mm-hmm. essentially we have lots of upwelling which is related to our springtime winds which stimulates the chlorophyll then you get the bait fish which just feed off of that and you have these booms and busts in the cycle and where you just get california current gets all kinds of nutrients and stuff like that brought to the surface and all these fish then respond and come here to forage like these highly migratory fish hmm. um yeah i mean it's just there's just so much that goes on in california current every year is different and just exciting like Think, things, about it fun to it fish fish it's gonna be something. one of
1: the best fisheries around.
4: Yeah, definitely. So no, you never know what you're gonna get. Right. you can target basically everything. Yeah, yeah, super fun. But you yeah, know, last year, like just getting back to the drought really quick, it was really weird. Um, the water was really warm. Yeah, but and it was technically a La Nina cycle. Essentially, it, exactly
3: right. It seemed like it was opposite. And this year, it's supposed to be an El Nino, but it's still cold out there.
4: Yeah. So there's um yeah there's delayed. Re- um, of impact or effects from when it like we're coming into an el nino right now mm-hmm. um essentially but we won't see the effects of that probably for like six months or so
3: that's what i was thinking yeah, yeah. i was i always
4: thought that next summer or I, at least this upcoming
3: summer is when we would really start seeing the good fishing
1: probably even just before
3: right
4: yeah or it might uh like some of the like i remember the last really good el nino the, i was catching elephant into december nice like, yeah so yeah one of the better bites i had was out of the cortez on 20, 25-pound yellowfin, and I think it was almost Christmas. Was thinking, no way. <laughs> it was, it was crazy. <laughs> that's awesome. But, yeah, no, so usually we see Dorado in good numbers during an El Nino year, and the water's warm during an El Nino year. But last year was a La Nina year, and the water was, but the water was still really warm. Hmm. So a lot of this stuff is more complicated is what we're coming to find. You know, it's not necessarily El Nino, La Nina is going to mean this or that. There's a lot more that goes into it. There's this thing called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which is another. It's like a, a layer above El Nino and La Nina, and it's over a longer time period where there'll be cold periods of the PDO and warm periods of the PDO. And that probably has happens a little bit more. It's impact on things we're, we're trying to, we're finally learning, essentially. Um, but it's just, it's so complicated, and, yeah, it's really hard to say. It's all dynamic, too. It's
3: changing yeah. constantly, right? Yep. Hmm. So sword fishing is another topic that's getting more and more kind of interest here in Southern California. But it's funny that sword fishing has been going on in SoCal for over a hundred years. I mean, I remember these stories of Zane Grey targeting these surface swords. Obviously, the whole deep drop thing is different now, and I think we're kind of we've gotten a lot of info from Florida. And I wanted to ask you about the differences between that East Coast and West Coast fishery because I know that at least through what I've seen, East Coast they catch a lot more fish, but they seem to be smaller which at least for me as a fisherman points to that being a breeding ground, and this was more of a feeding ground on the West Coast. Does that have any sort of play?
4: Um, I think it's probably, I'm not exactly sure, in terms of East Coast versus West Coast kind of thing. I mean, it, they're completely different stocks, so it depends on the pressures like throughout the range of that fishery, essentially. So maybe they're, you know more pressured in one fishery or less pressured in another fishery. So that sure. might be related to the size of the fish that we see, um, potentially a little bit of their, their behavior, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it is it is interesting that people out here weren't doing the deep drop thing earlier. Exactly, you know,
3: right. It is kind I of
4: this. Like, I mean, it, it, it works. It's
1: something new that people, a lot of people are, I shouldn't say new, but a lot of people are starting to do it more now mm-hmm. than and it's they working. have been.
3: Yeah. But so I, I guess, yeah, I guess I shouldn't, that's too far of a difference, East Coast and West Coast. But I've heard there's Mexican fish and there's Hawaiian fish. Have you heard that?
0: Yeah, so, so.
4: that's a good question. Um, and they're doing a lot of tagging of swordfish. Um, some guys right here out of Oceanside, I don't know if you know, the Fluger Institute of Environmental yeah. Research, yeah. yeah. Chugi, Sepulveda, and Scooch, um, they tag a lot of these things. And they're looking into the answering that question. It's pretty complicated. Um, but there are fish that migrate in from the Central Pacific, like around Hawaii, et cetera, et cetera. There are fish that migrate in from... Uh, More down south, like um, in Baja or something like that, or southern Mexico, or even further south. So, you do have these two different bodies of fish, which in what percentage comes in and when and stuff like that is still there's a lot of questions in relation to that. Um, But we're getting the more fish we tag, the more we're learning about them. And the work that they did is actually um, one of the reasons why this deep set buoy gear or a deep drop for swordfish kind of like has come about in recent years. You know, you Mm -hmm. look at the tag data and it shows. You know swordfish uh, and all most fish they do something called a diurnal um, Pattern where during the day they are doing one thing and at night they're doing another thing So you look at the tag data and it shows swordfish at night are always up at the surface huh. you know in the top 50 meters of the water column or something like that And then as soon as sunrise, you know, right when the sunrise comes up They dive, they dive down and they spend most of their time at depth during the daily really? and then sunset comes and boom They're coming back up to the surface Um, So, yeah, that tagging data suggested that they're probably foraging down there. Mm -hmm. um, And they started dropping down baits down there and having a lot of success, essentially.
3: That's very – so do you think they'd have a similar amount of success if they, like, put a squid on the top at nighttime and just let it soak, you know?
4: Yeah, there are – I mean – there are guys that do that yeah um, yeah it might be a little bit more difficult i don't know if we they might not be actively feeding as much you know mm. but there are people that fish i mean shallower at night for swordfish yeah interesting definitely um yeah no there's i mean that's why the historical the commercial drift gill net fishery <laughs> sets at night and they set shallow essentially <laughs> so that they can capture those fish when they're at the surface gotcha um, yeah
3: but was, I, what's the biggest sword you've seen wade at on our coast
4: uh, I think it might have been that one that was caught like a week and a half ago or two weeks. Really? ago. Really? I mean, yeah, at least um, huh. Recreationally commercially, I don't have any numbers on how big fish. It was. How big was that one? It was 540
3: on the scale or something like that. It wow, was, it was a monster There was a couple I know they've harpooned a couple up in the Channel Islands off of uh, Santa Cruz that have been that size There was one gilled and gutted or, or processed that was 485 I think which must would have been a huge one. Yeah, yeah. This was, I think, about a month ago.
4: Yeah. No, I saw. I just saw that fish um, report actually too. But yeah. No. I mean, the commercial fishery historically used to fish uh, all the way up and down the coast. Um, and I don't know what the largest landed fish is for that, but it's probably around that range.
3: So the commercial sword fishing on the west coast has been pretty well established for quite a number of years now. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Going wow. back.
4: Um, since like the early 80s, there was a lot more commercial swordfish pressing, And it was a lot wow. of it was um, drift gill net fishing, essentially. Okay. And a lot of it occurred off Central California, like um, Monterey Bay and stuff like that. Really? Um, yeah. And that area has actually been closed for a long period of time to any kind of um, drift gill nets or commercial swordfishing because um, of the interactions that they used to have with the leatherback sea turtles. So you ca- they would catch a lot of leatherback sea turtles. So they closed that area, and it forced a lot of fish, uh, sword fishermen into Southern California. And yeah different methods and stuff like that, like the harpoon fishery, um yeah. And then um the drift gill net fishery, which is the, the number of boats in that fleet is definitely dwindling.
3: Wow. That's real well, I, I they're putting a lot more pressure on those on those netting guys, right? I know up in the Channel Islands didn't they uh prohibit all the gill nets for the white sea bass and halibut as well?
4: Um inshore gill netting I'm not sure what the recent regulations are minor changes are on that. I mean, uh, inshore gillnetting netting in the 80s was also banned within like three miles of the coastline, mm. um, which is why we probably saw a lot of good rebound in like the white sea bass fishery, halibut fishery and stuff like that. You know, moving that inshore gillnet net um, or restricting it to a certain uh, range from, from shore essentially probably had some big impacts on a lot of our coastal fisheries. But yeah, the, the net guys have been getting a lot of pressure um, in recent years from all kinds of different entities so
3: so talk about you know deep dropping the swordfish and stuff i've heard of stories you catch not only swordfish down there but also sometimes big eye threshers but also opa opa is a huge kind of enigma around the the industry that i know of could you get sure <laughs> to set some light and to just like
1: i want to catch one <laughs>
3: yeah exactly the people that want to catch one how can they target an opa
4: Opa is a very interesting and weird fish. We um, was on one of our shark tagging trips and uh, the, the cruise leader like was like, it's still alive, we're releasing it. I was just like, no. <laughs> um, about 10 or 15 hooks later, we got one that was not alive. But they, there hasn't been much tag data done on them, but they do inhabit water's pretty the <coughs> water column as well, similar to a swordfish. I mean, a lot of guys look at them like fishing deep irons when they're catching tuna or something like that. Um, but there's a lot, I mean... There's a lot of different ways to target them. I, I would think, you know, they just have to be there, and you have to again put it in front of like the, exactly. the right fish's face. Um, I don't know if you could consistently. They don't school like a tuna. They're they're generally they might have form loose aggregations or something like that. Where but they're not actually schooling fish. Um, my best uh, advice would be fish deep drops, drop-offs, you know, like the, the Canyon Edge, like they are for swordfish, essentially. Yeah. Um, or if, if you could fish a seamount, they do associate with seamounts pretty well. Um, and then fishing a bait probably like 300 feet or something like that, staggering it. So the 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 guys that developed the, the deep-set buoy gear, um, they were originally fishing two hooks, one down deep and one mid-water column, and they called that the Opa hook. Really? So And they no longer fish that... Um, shallower hook because they were not getting that many swordfish and they're trying to develop a fishery for swordfish hmm. So that shallower hook is what they actually called the Opa hook. Right. So Yeah, um Are you can to uh, you can go out and fish kelp patties? No, uh, that's it. Right. You know, I heard
3: it, I heard that
4: it, it, Really crazy story. Um, I had uh, I take um a lot of volunteers that I have at the lab. I take them fishing um, I had this one volunteer took him out and we were fishing kelp patty for Dorado um, and <laughs> I think at the 182 and I didn't ask him what he was fishing, like 15, what pound test or anything like that. Um, I'm not getting bit. I'm fishing like 30 pound tests and he hooks a Dorado, gets it, we land it. I'm like, cool, whatever. And then uh, we pull up to another kelp patty, not getting any bites. Um, and I'm like about to pull, about to fire up the motor and, and drive away and he's, and he gets bit and it's fighting. It's not fighting like a Dorado. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, you got a nice yellow tail. You got a nice yellow tail. <laughs> for sure. It's like, Taking a while. I'm like, all right, let's go. And then um, he finally gets it up to color and he, and he screams Opa. And I'm like, you're, no, no, you're lying. You're lying. <laughs> if, if that's an Opa, I'm throwing you off the side of the boat right now. And I'm like, wait, are, what pound test are you fishing? He's like 15. Naturally. Like, of course. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, you got to be kidding me. Um, and it was a fly line mackerel. And sure enough, next time it comes up to color, freaking Opa. Fly line. Fly lined. Pacific mackerel that we caught <laughs> with a sabiki rig like an hour before on a kelp paddy.
3: How big was the opa?
4: 67
3: pounds. That's a no way. That's, that's pretty insane. big. Yeah, it was a and, nice fish. And how does it fight? Does it just doggy to straight up and down? like? Yeah, no,
4: similar to like a yellow tail, That's what I was thinking. Yeah. I'm like, no oh, you got a yellow tail, Like, And then it, when it came up to color, I mean, they, if you look at the opa, they've got these really crazy pectoral fins. So yeah. gaffing that thing was just a nightmare because they're super squirrely like at gaff you just really like, left right back up and down blah 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 Holy like, I was 15 like, too yeah on 15 <laughs> he, my my volunteer couldn't do much to like <laughs> direct the fish to me or anything like that but yeah based on their pectoral fins and stuff like that they got they were very very <clears throat> weird fish to gaff Oh, that's crazy!
1: Sixty-pound opal on fifteen—that seems to be a line class IGFA oh record right there.
4: <laughs> it's crazy. I
3: remember this made the news. I think it was back in twenty sixteen. It Was on the Excel. They were fishing. I think a kelp patty off uh, long range down south, and they got three. I think all of them were over a hundred
4: pounds. Yeah. No. Actually, it was weird. Uh, that that the big one on that fish. Um, I actually certified that as the state record. Um, and I collected the really? like guess of that fish. Yeah. So they I think they hooked like five <coughs> fish and I'm pretty sure they were fishing the seamount actually down there. And it wasn't, it wasn't a kelp patty. I'm pretty oh, sure no they, were, they were fishing yellows on a seamount. Um, yo-yo dropping. That was like, yeah, I remember that fish. So, um, I went down and I was like measuring that fish and signed it off for the form. It was the world or the I think, California state record for a long time. or maybe the world record actually. Sorry. Wow. In terms of... Every, there was a, Recently, there was another one bigger than that caught. Really? Um, but yeah, no, that was a, that was pretty cool. And are they only off our coast, or is that more of like a, a worldwide species? Wor- what's a worldwide species? Um, There's actually five different species of Opa. Um, genetically different. They actually look different a little bit. You know, all kind of the same, but you, you find them in a, basically every ocean. Yeah, Is it a moonfish? Is that like... That, that's the... one of the common names, yeah, is moonfish, okay. yeah.
1: Okay, gotcha. They're popular well, around... Um, Oh, gosh. Australia, too, aren't they?
4: Um, yeah, there's definitely southern opa they're down there. They're popular. Right. I mean, they're caught in a lot of long fisheries, generally as bycatch. Um, people are targeting big i tuna. But right. They, but they also catch a lot of opa. Yeah. so Nice. Very cool fish. Very delicious. Uh, lots of different meats. <laughs> yeah, so that
2: that was actually a question I had for you. So I've been told, um, and I've, I've seen opa filleted before, and it almost seems like there's four or five Pieces of meat that don't look like one another. And I've been told that they all taste like a different fish. Is there any truth to that?
4: Um, Yeah, yeah. And when we were catching them, and they definitely have different chunks of meat. It's like, so the pectoral muscle um, is very, very unique. Um, So they're called, they do exhibit what's called labraform labriform swimming method they're not using their tail to swim as much they're using more of their pectoral fins and they kind of like flap like a bird essentially hmm. um so if that's their main way to swim you would have like how what's driving that so you actually break down the different pieces um or different muscles and you can weigh them and stuff like that and the so pe- your
2: fast twitch your slow pitch muscles
4: yep i um, mean the, the pectoral muscle on an opa is like 17 of the body weight and so it's this huge muscle and it yeah you cut it out it looks differently it looks like a chunk of beef or something like that it definitely tastes differently some people don't like it i actually really like it Um I mean, you can do all kinds of different things with it but then the, the top loin is similar to like a tuna <clears throat> rice yeah and then the, the belly is different for sure um, just flaying them is weird
1: and they have a a cheek that you can take too right like a uh, like a uh, halibut does
4: yep yep no, um, I used to work at one of the farmers markets in a Monterey Bay selling fish actually and, mm-hmm. and the way we would describe it was like the cross between a salmon and a tuna back then But that that's when the people weren't actually cutting out the pectoral muscle, right? So that that's completely different muscle essentially, but yeah, one of the reasons why they started looking into that like um, Is to increase the yield so there was a lot of discard when you're you know, you land in OPA like it's got all this other muscle. Is there anything we can do with it, you know, to increase the value of the fish mm. for the fishermen? Essentially, so that's why people like uh, Tommy Gomes, you know, started doing all kinds of crazy recipes with it and making all kinds of a lot of a lot of different um, chefs in different restaurants started finding different ways to cook different parts of opa, so the fishermen would then get more money, essentially, so right. and reduce the waste. You know, you're landing this fish. If you can utilize it, it's a really good idea.
3: Yeah. Very interesting. Well, kind of circling back to bluefin a little bit. Um, we we sort of touched on on breeding grounds, and you said that they were off of like off of Japan or, or like New Zealand almost. What is it about those conditions over there that make them breed? Is it is it the water temperature? Is it the salinity or the acidity or, or
4: what kind of conditions? Like why why can't they do it over here? Um, it's it's generally related to sea surface temperature. Oh yeah, it's pretty much one of the driving factors for. Spawning of all all fish is they have a preferred temperature where they like to spawn, and huh. that and that's related to generally the uh, the success of their larvae. So you they you know if you spawned out here, uh, or if you spawned in water that wasn't the right temperature, all everything that you just did isn't going to live. You know your eggs and larvae are, they they have a very small um, temperature <coughs> temperature range where they can survive in, like um. A bluefin tuna can be caught in, you know, 54 to 74, 80 degree water, right? They can, as an adult, they can go through much larger temperature ranges, especially if they're going up and down the water column because sea surface temperature is not the only temperature they're experiencing on any given day. You go down 100 100 meters, something like that, the water's a lot colder. But the larvae, the eggs and larvae have very specific conditions for them to survive, so. That
3: makes sense. I mean, and, and is it is it warmer? I guess uh, over there, is it the sea surface that's just more stable? Yeah. Is it also that that part of the world? I feel like has a lot more extreme weather. There's typhoons and there's hurricanes that move through. That doesn't affect the fish stocks at all. Like, how does natural disasters
4: play into that kind of thing? It's also so it's also related to um, the time of year too. So it's, uh, the sea surface temperatures are consistently like you know at a certain time of year is when conditions are generally going to be right, and that mm. may be time of year when there aren't like large weather disturbances or something like that or it might be I don't don't really know exactly how that comes into play but you know they do spawn in like the the sea of Japan essentially is like it's a very small little area very isolated and it's pretty stable for the time of year that they're spawning there the temperatures at least
3: so this is the last thing on this that I got but I've read a report before about the sea of Japan and specifically bluefin there um, was there any impact after the Fukushima release? I, I don't know. Maybe that's not a, a topic you want to get into. But I I've seen some studies <laughs> on that.
0: Way to go, Nate! <laughs> uh, hey, <I'd laughs> asking the hard questions. I, I wanted just
3: to see because I know that was a topic I've talked about it with my a couple of captains before, and they have some opinions on that. That that's put a uh, an impact on the on the Bluefin fishery, but.
4: Uh, I'd love to hear all the opinions. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) right? (laughs) No, um, that was actually a really cool event for some of the research that we did because that allowed us to actually track migrations and put a timeline on a lot of things. So I can't speak to whether or not it had an impact on the fishery. Um, I do know that when that event happened, we were still getting lots of bluefin swimming over here from Japan. And you could detect the cesium isotope in the muscle tissue of a small percentage of them. And that <laughs> led to a lot of different like rep- um, publications where we were able to put out information on like how much cesium. Is it you know harmful? should you be concerned and stuff like that? And it turns out like, there was such a, it was almost an ind- undetectable amount. So it was just really cool in terms of like an opportunity to study their migrations because you could say, "Oh, this fish was definitely in Japan. And it definitely showed up in the California Current. And we were able to monitor that for a while, um, I think over three or four years. And then the the signal just disappeared because the cesium isotope breaks down. It's got this thing called like a half-life. So every year it breaks down 50%, 50%, 50%. And then it gets to the point where it's undetectable. So basically everyone was concerned over here, oh, should we be eating... Bluefin should be eating seafood. That was the topic, anything, right? Yeah. You know, and it was like, it was definitely like rippling through the, the recreational and the commercial industry and all that stuff. Everyone was like freaking out about it. Um, the <clears> amount <throat> that we found in the fish was so low that if you got a sunburn or ate a banana or went and dug in the garden, you're getting exposed to more cesium. So there was mm. no, it was nowhere near close to the level that like the FDA says you should be concerned. Mm. Totally fine to eat. It. Huh.
3: And what about like mercury levels in, in fish? Does that go up and down? Does that depend on species, you know? Like I've seen some fishermen who have gone to their doctor and their mercury levels are way higher than they should be because they eat, you know, tuna jerky or whatever every day.
4: Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm not going to get too much into that one. It's <laughs> definitely <laughs> species and size related. So mm-hmm. like generally um, you when you eat mercury, you don't doesn't get processed and it's always in you essentially. So small smaller fish generally like a sardine or mackerel have lower mercury than like a thousand pound Mako shark or, or a 50 pound Mako shark has less mercury than a thousand pound Mako shark. So as they get larger, they incorporate more and more mercury into their body. Um, so yeah.
0: Okay. Oh, and from the federal side um, you know, <laughs> speaking to us anglers and all that stuff, what kind of um, maybe not necessarily necessarily um, like threats or anything, but what kind of things do we need to kind of be worried about as anglers, or what do we, um, what, what should we I guess be looking forward to or looking towards to uh, to be doing?
4: Um, I don't think there's anything that you should be too worried about. Um, just keep um, angling ethically. You know, is like mm-hmm. what we try and promote a lot of times is ethical angling, doing the right thing. You know, uh, following all management rules. Um, yeah, not too many things that I can think of that Mm -hmm. I'm concerned about. Um,
0: Do you you ever get a chance to go up to like PFMC and make presentations or anything like that and kind of participate on the good old advocacy stuff?
4: um, I go to some of those meetings, but as a representative of NOAA, Mm -hmm. um, essentially. So I was actually on this last Sunday, I was hanging out with Wayne during a recreational uh, fisheries (laughs) listening session. Good for you. Listening to Wayne in the back the corner standing up. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, Did you record any of that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's a recording somewhere. But <laughs> no, I do, I do participate in some meetings and stuff like that. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, no, it's if I'm representing Noah, I, I can't express some of my personal opinions
0: yeah. or feelings. So. Yeah, that makes sense. So what's on top? I know we're wrapping up 23 right now, but on 24, your level with, you know, with your work and all that stuff. Any exciting stuff going on, or will go, will be going on?
4: Um, I think it's going to be kind of more of the same, you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of what I've been, I'm going to be doing. I'm still focusing a lot on uh, Pacific bluefin tuna and albacore research. I'm actually going to start working on uh, age and growth of albacore again. So we're Hmm. going to look at um, sexual dimorphic growth rates. So does a male or female albacore grow at different rates and uh, how old do they get and stuff like that? (laughs) Um, So in terms of my research, there's not much change going to be happening next year. I mean, it all depends on what we end up seeing it here off the coast, you know, and who knows, it mm-hmm. seems like this recent past couple of years have shown that it's really hard to predict what's going to happen. Um, yeah. You know, looks like we're going into an El Nino. Does that mean it's going to be warmer water? Maybe not. Um, last year was El Nino we had El Nino water temperatures. And you know, how is it going to relate to wind and rain and stuff like that? Like El Ninos are supposed to be warm and wet. You know, lots more rain. But last year was a La Nina and there's
0: snow. A bunch of rain. More <laughs> rain yeah. than we we ever snow. snow. Yeah. yeah.
4: It was crazy weather last last winter. I got snow at work.
0: Oh, yeah. I remember that. Up in Hesperia. Uh, crazy. So yeah. basically predictions are just all out the window at this point.
4: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I think we have, we have a lot of data going back, you know, almost 100 years on a lot of stuff. But it just... What I seem to have been noticing is that we don't have enough data to really... It's like predicting, like, is it going to be windy tomorrow or (laughs) a week from now? Like, a lot of the times the forecast is right. A lot of times it's wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. Within six hours things can change and it might not be predicted. Right. So it's very similar in terms of fisheries or Mm -hmm. fish behavior and all that stuff.
1: I do have one more bluefin question, though. Yeah. When we... uh, Earlier we were talking about the home guards with the, the yellow. Is there any way that the bluefin are not making it all the way back to Japan and maybe hanging out in Mexican waters and not going all the way home?
4: Um, So it's kind of hard. We do know, like when I was talking about it, in terms of like looking at the tissue, you are mm-hmm. what you eat essentially. Um, and you can use that to say what, how long the fish has been in the California current. So all these larger bluefin that we're running the tissues on for that all looked like they were California current fish. Like they'd been here. We call them like residents. Right. Or, home guard, whatever, you want to apply it to the bluefin as well. So These larger fish have been residents in the California Current for three, five, maybe six, seven years. Wow! Um, But what happens to them after that, we don't, I mean, we're not seeing fish over, there was a couple over 400 caught, but like two. Um, We don't see that many over 300 pounds, and they do get much larger. Yes. So if we're not seeing them, there's so much coverage on the water here, and we're not seeing them, they're not hanging out here they're going back to japan to do their thing or or the western pacific ocean right spawn somewhere over there so it's amazing because it just seems
1: i mean to to me i'd I'd like to see one that was tagged to see how long it takes to leave here go back to japan and then make its way back i mean it seems like a long take a long long time but then again you're just going in this you can go in the straight line and that's the quickest way from point a to point b
4: yeah, there will be some publications, I'm sure, coming out uh, showing that migration back um, based on electron tag data and right. like, probably the timing and stuff like that. But uh, <clears throat> it's pretty crazy how fast these things can swim. They can travel a long distance overnight. Yeah. Um, and we did some work. There was a really cool publication where you know, we looked at the otolith, which is a bone in the brain, which you can use to age the fist, essentially similar to a tree. You count rings and stuff like that. And it's a hard part. It's a structure where you can go back and you can analyze when it was born what it did like at one year of age and then you can analyze the end of it which is like when, when it was caught you know right so what when you look at the core or basically the, the when it was born the area there for bluefin um basically it always matches up to the um, sea water chemistry off of japan and then if you look at the outer edge of a bluefin caught in southern california the water chemistry matches up to the Southern california water right so what we did is we took um, fish that we thought were new arrivals into Southern California, you know, like the smaller, smallest fish that we caught for a couple of years, like fourteen to twenty pounders, and we took those otoliths, and we basically grinded out the chemist or the um, whole otolith, different little sections, and matched it up to like um, the seawater chemistry essentially, and what you could see is that there was. Japan signature 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 and swimming across the Pacific probably then boom it enters the California current and the chemical composition of the otolith dramatically changes Like you know, so that was what we determined to be an entry signal into the California current So you could look back at the otolith over time. and You could say this is likely when it left Japan This is likely when it entered the California current (coughs) And these small fish we this publication came out of the average time for them to swim that distance was 33 to 64 days. Jeez. to <laughs> so get across the whole world. Across the entire Pacific Ocean. Wow. Yeah, so they're swimming across the entire Pacific Ocean. That's not Ocean long at all. In a month or two broken. months. Jeez. <laughs> oh so they, they're not really eating that whole time then, huh? Probably not. Wow. Probably not. They're, they're hungry. They're like, we know whatever reason. They know that they swim this direction. There's going to be a lot of food. Huh. So if...
3: If the Sea of Japan is largely a spawning ground and not really a feeding ground, does that mean, and I know you haven't done many studies there, but is there a lot of really big ones and really small ones, not much of that mid-grade, or are there all sorts of sizes of bluefin out there?
4: Um, actually, so the, it is a pretty good foraging ground over there. So <coughs> oh, not, okay. not all bluefin swim over to the California Current. Got there are, there okay. is a percentage which actually stay there and do their entire life there. Uh, okay, so, gotcha. And that varies every year. Some years there might be more that swim to the Eastern Pacific Ocean. If there, There's been a couple of different studies shown, like if there's not much forage in the Sea of Japan, or um, the waters over there in the Western Pacific Ocean, do a higher percentage of fish then migrate to the California current. So if there's no food over there, they're going to go somewhere, hmm. you know, so they'll migrate somewhere else. And that means they might be more fish showing up over here. Um, but there is, a, there is a certain percentage of fish that do stay there and gotcha. you know, do their thing there.
0: my goodness
3: crazy wow that's amazing to me that they can swim from here to japan in a month and they know where they're going the whole time
4: (laughs) that's crazy (laughs) no road no 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 street signs! no
0: road map no nothing i just know
4: Uh, i'm sure a few of them get lost (laughs) (laughs) it happens it happens yeah
0: well owen um it this has been fascinating i learned quite a bit Quite a bit of info. I know, you, Nate, you're you're just Honestly, giggling over there. Now, this has been great. Thank you for answering <laughs> that.
3: Fucking thinking your brain. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thanks.
0: Yeah.
1: Thanks for coming in.
0: Yep, yeah, for sure. Tony, you got any other questions? You got them all answered?
2: Oh, I think we're good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> She's got
0: a lot to process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks
4: for having
2: He's me. He's got, got a lot of things yeah. he can't talk about,
0: so <laughs> that's yeah. where I was going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, Owen, before we get going here, um, what's the best way for, uh, I know you know you participate in surveys on the boats and all that stuff, but is there any other ways that us anglers can get involved with you and help you out on your research and all that?
4: Um, yeah, so like uh, I was saying earlier, if you, you know, see anything weird on the water, catch anything weird, you can reach out to me um, via my email or uh, just look me up, owen.snodgrass at noah.gov is my email. Um, cool. You can always send me emails if you really wanted to collect carcasses of bluefin tuna and um, go out of your way and drop them off at the lab so I don't have to drive around <laughs> all over Southern <laughs> California picking up fish. Where, where is the lab? Uh, it's right there in La Jolla, um, up the hill from Scripps, okay. SIO, um, right off um, La Jolla Shores Drive. Nice. you so, can nice. start having a Pile of
3: carcasses at your door now every single day, just showing up, yeah, doing well, your job for you, I guess. Us yeah. bay
1: fishermen will drop off some spotties for you to do yeah, some, right. some research I'll on a halibut.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, man. Well, Owen, thank you, thank you again for for uh, stopping in and, and talking to us and all that stuff. This has been fascinating.
4: Yeah, no, man. My pleasure. I, I, I can get... Talking about this stuff all day long, every day. It's like you know. As I get started, I just love it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice. Well, I I know uh, I believe a mutual friend of ours, Daniel Stud. He came in a couple months ago. He was actually giving out his phone number on uh, on the podcast. I'm not asking you to do that. Can you believe? (laughs) Yeah, he gave out his personal number. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was shocked. I'm like, oh. You're going to receive some interesting phone calls now.
4: Oh, man. Yeah. Dan- Daniel's a great guy. He still has a lot to learn, though, obviously. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, man. Well, Owen, once again, thank you so much for coming in. Um, one more time, how do we get in contact with you? How do we uh, go see your research? All that good stuff.
4: Yeah. Um, just if you go, so there's a, you know, Google's obviously an amazing resource that everyone's quite familiar with. Um, you can also go to Google and you can type in Scholar. Um, so Google Scholar hmm. is a way that you can search scientific publications. Oh. So it's a specific part of Google mm-hmm. that only searches through stuff that is peer-reviewed and scientifically published. Oh. So you type in Google Scholar, and then you can type in my name, and it will bring up all the different research publications that I have been part of, and you'll find the Yellowtail tagging one there. You'll find a bunch of bluefin ones. You'll find some albacore ones. Um Yeah, just type in Owen Snodgrass, that's O-W-Y-N-S-N-O-D-G-R-A-S-S, and you can type in a specific species like bluefin or albacore or yellowtail, and it'll bring up a list of publications. And generally speaking, all of those are free. Um, There are some which were in journals which are not free. Um, You could then email me, and I'll find a way.
0: Perfect. Nice. Great. I never knew that existed on Google.
3: Hmm. Yeah, that was a tool in my college days. When I was <coughs> researching stuff, that was extremely helpful.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Owen, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much.
3: Yeah, no worries, guys.
0: Awesome. Darren, Nate, Tony, fascinating stuff. Loved can't it. believe it. I Loved learned it. Absolutely. I learned more than a few things. I learned sure. more than
3: a few things. That was fantastic. That yeah. was super cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Owen, oh, we we say this to all of our guests, but you got to come back uh, sometime. Uh, probably you know, in the next couple months, we'll have some video. We'll have a... Uh, Lot of cool stuff, and I uh, have to give us an update or so. Yeah, Especially if sure you in. find something interesting, just give
1: us a call. Say, "Hey, I got to come on. I got something to talk about."
0: Yeah, yeah. Or any any tips and tricks on how to catch more bluefin that'd be that'd be helpful too.
4: <laughs> yeah, so spend more time on the water. That's my problem, <laughs> <laughs> that's my problem this year.
0: <laughs> well, guys, that's going to do it for uh, this week on the CCA California podcast. Make sure to go follow us on Instagram at CCA California. Make sure to go like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we will see you guys next week. Take care.